Usually, the weekly scripture is listed in the bulletin and the email broadcast, so you know what to read in advance. So maybe you were surprised that there was no scripture listed for today. But I assure you, not as surprised as I was when I saw my name on the teaching schedule <laughs> and no specific passage attached. Instead, it only said, launch of covenant communities, the small intentional ministry groups here at Forest View. So this morning, in lieu of a sermon, I am going to present a persuasive essay on why you should join a CovCom. <laughs> but really, this is just the record of the conversation I've been having with myself all year. So the real title could be why Matthew should join a CovCom. And it's pretty simple. I should join a CovCom because the life I'm trying to live in Christ can only be achieved through community. And secondly, after 40 years, I've learned I'm not going to read my Bible unless I commit to doing it with a group of others. There is a reason our vision is to be a community where people meet Jesus and become more like him, as opposed to a place where people meet Jesus and become more like him. Because becoming more like Jesus requires other people. We are called to love and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness. And these are not something we can develop or practice on our own. So why do we need community? We all have a basic need for belonging. We are not meant to be alone. In the very beginning, the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a suitable helper for him. And anyone who's ever been to a Christian wedding knows that two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity the one who falls and has no one to help them up. And this should be obvious to Christians. Being alone is a problem. But it's also obvious to politicians and psychologists. Canada has recently set a 15-day limit on solitary confinement in federal prisons to align with UN recommendations, because solitary confinement has a demonstrable impact on a prisoner's mental health. Isolation also impacts our physical health. In 2017, American psychologists published an article that noted, loneliness is linked to poorer cardiovascular health and in old age, a faster rate of cognitive decline and dementia. Feeling lonely possesses a bigger risk for premature death than smoking or obesity. Loneliness impacts our mental health, it impacts our physical health, and it impacts our social health. A few weeks ago, Mark Evans spoke about Psalm 133 and the importance of unity within the church, especially because he observed our cultural space has moved to a society of polarization and division. He pointed out that even Christians are more likely to identify us and them than ever before. And his message resonated with me because I'd been reading a number of articles that draw a line between isolation and polarization, the polarization he was talking about. Here, 
from the New York Times. Many stories can be told about the midterm elections, but their mixed results make one thing clear. We are a country divided. Pundits have attributed our historically high levels of polarization to a variety of sources, including the isolating effects of social media. Driven by a deep-seated need to belong, Americans are increasingly segregating themselves into ideological enclaves. So first, we need community because we're not meant to be alone. And second, growth can only happen in community. If we are to be apprentices of Christ, we need to work alongside others to figure it out. As well-intentioned or as disciplined as I am, if I try to do it alone, it just won't work. In the Bible, communities are the default. Jesus is always with his disciples. The New Testament church is constantly coming together. From Acts. With one accord, they continued to meet daily in the temple courts and break bread from house to house, sharing their meals with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. I can only think of one example from the New Testament of a person trying to figure out faith on his own, and it didn't work for him. In Acts, we see the story of the Ethiopian official. He's just been worshiping in Jerusalem and is now returning home, and as he travels, he's reading the book of Isaiah, but he doesn't get it, and God sends Philip to him. And Philip asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he replied, how can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to settle in and sit beside him. Then Philip began to speak, and starting with this scripture, he proclaimed to him the good news about Jesus. If you think back on your own faith story, how much of your own growth happened because someone else made a choice to mentor you, or to challenge you, or to simply spend some time with you? I've been attending Ontario Pioneer Camp for 31 years. And last summer, I spent an afternoon with Daryl Smith, uh, a fixture at boys' camp who's responsible for organizing activity classes and maintaining and curating a database that tracks 25 years' worth of camper statistics. And we were talking about retention rates because we both recognized that there's an urgency to sharing the good news of Christ if you know that 40% of the kids there every week will never be back. And I asked him, if there was a way to predict whether campers would return from one summer to the next. I thought maybe some counselors were better than others. Some of them had maybe a higher retention rate. And Daryl said, the biggest indicator of whether campers will return, the biggest predictor of whether they would make a commitment and return as staff themselves to continue the ministry had nothing to do with staff, it had nothing to do with the food or activities, the thing that pointed to whether they would still be following Jesus 10 years after they finished at camp was whether they found a group of other boys to do camp with, to do life with. And in my own experience, he was spot on. If I'm content with my faith as it is, I can probably do it on my own for a time. But if I want to move forward, like the Ethiopian official, I need a guide. And I do want to move. I'm not content with where I am. I've met Jesus, 
Now I want to come more like him, and I know I'm not alone. According to the 100 Days of Prayer report, we want to be a unified group of people moving forward, learning to serve better, being connected to one another, and growing in our faith. And I can delude myself into thinking that it will happen here on a Sunday morning. But in my own experience, attending this place every week doesn't result in community. In the same way that social media can give the appearance of community, while actually making us more isolated, I find Sunday morning can often feel like a collection of individuals rather than the community we all want it to be. And I know I'm not the only one who feels this, because the comments in last year's 100 Days of Prayer and the comments in the vision uh, survey that we did, they all said the same thing. They point to the fact that we know we're missing something. And the leadership team recognized this too, which is why last year we focused on community lunches. But it still felt like we were just starting to scratch the surface. If we are looking to find friendship, relationship, and support, it isn't going to happen on a Sunday morning. How can it? We're only here for 75 minutes. Well, 90 since Doug's been here. And, and to be fair, I am just as long as Doug, and Craig did announcements, so it's going to be 95 at least. <laughs> but we spend those 95 looking forward and very little time with each other. I mean, I suppose it can happen on a Sunday, and I'm sure it has happened because God is able to do marvelous things. But that would be the exception rather than the expectation. Whereas covenant communities are places where community, relationship, and support are generated by design. And as we heard from Paul this morning, CovComs will build relationships by serving together, sorry, sharing together, learning together, and serving together. All right. The second reason I should join a covenant community. For the record, I do read my Bible, <laughs> but not in the way and not as often as I expect of myself. And I've known this for years, but the reality of this statement really hit home a few months ago when we were working through the Surprise the World series. In his book, Michael Frost explained why it is so important to continually, weekly expose ourselves to Jesus through the Gospels. In short, we need to learn him if we are going to share him as the reason for the hope that we have. And I remember smiling and nodding and thinking, this is a great idea. I can totally do this. And then I read the line that stopped me cold. And Doug repeated it the following Sunday, so it was impossible for me to ignore. Reading the Gospels should not replace your regular Bible reading plan. Right, my regular Bible reading plan. You see, the truth is I have a plan, but it isn't really a program. My Bible reading plan, my fitness plan, my healthy eating plan, my mortgage acceleration plan, none of them are really plans at all. At best, I have a plan 
to plan. And in all these things, recognizing their importance has not translated into action. It is an inconvenient object lesson for Paul's observation that I do not do what I want. I have the desire to do what's good, but I cannot carry it out. So why don't I read it as much as I think I should? There's a few reasons. First, somehow, I have ended up on two daily devotional email lists. And at this point, unsubscribing would seem like an indictment of some sort. <laughs> and between them and the sermon podcasts for the search committee and a book about church leadership I picked up over the summer, it actually feels like I'm reading it a lot. But reading about the Bible is not the same as reading the Bible itself. Hearing someone else's insight into the scriptures is not the same as giving the Holy Spirit a chance to do its work in me. Remember, the counselor, the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name will teach you everything and remind you of all that I have told you. Jennifer Sum points to the responsibility I have to read it for myself. Food is the freshest and tastes the best when eaten close to the source. In a similar way, our spiritual food is best consumed at its source, the Bible itself. While devotionals and Bible teachings can be helpful, they are ultimately processed food. And there is little way to test what other ingredients, good or bad, have been introduced. The writer of Hebrews also compares the quality of our understanding to food. You've been believers so long now that you ought to be teaching others. Instead, you need someone to teach you again the basic things of God's word. You're like babies who need milk and cannot eat solid food. Now, in Hebrews, the community is still not ready for solid food. But in my case, is it possible I am so comfortable with milk? I'm not interested in solid food? Doug put the importance of reading for ourselves another way a few months ago when he said that truth discovered is more powerful, more enduring than truth explained. This past year, Judah, Elliot, and I watched our way through the entire Marvel Cinematic Universe in anticipation of Endgame. Every Friday, we watched an installment together. And the more we watched, the more we wanted to watch, the more we wanted to know. About halfway through the year, I think I became a legitimate fan. So in addition to watching the movies, I read timelines to help me keep all my facts straight. <laughs> and I'd read a summary of an original movie before the sequel came out so I wouldn't miss anything. I'd watch reaction videos to see what the critics thought, and I'd talk about my predictions with Elliot and Judah. But all of these things happened after we watched the movies for ourselves, after we'd formed our own impressions. I would never read a Wikipedia summary of Black Panther instead of watching the actual movie. That would be ridiculous. But often I think that is exactly what I do with the Bible when I reach for an essay by Barbara Brown Taylor instead of picking up Corinthians. Learning about the story is not the same as experiencing the story. 
the moment when Thor returned in Infinity War. <laughs> right? Or hearing on your left in Endgame. These moments were incredible. And I could spend an hour explaining why they were incredible, but it won't come close to experiencing them for yourself with 200 people on opening night. And if this is true of entertainment, how much more true of it is it in life? I can explain grace, but it won't come close to experiencing grace. I can explain forgiveness, but it's nothing like being forgiven. And I can explain the joy of community when you experience loss, but it won't come close to being supported as you mourn a parent or a child. Because in the end, truth discovered is more powerful, more enduring than truth explained. There's another reason I don't read as much as I think I should. The world has changed. Once upon a time, people would memorize things so they would be able to recall important information later on. Information was knowledge. Eventually, humanity started writing things down because there was too much to remember. The oldest examples of ancient Greek are a list of olives, cumin, and wool to be tied. In Greece, written language was invented because the kings were too rich to keep track of their stuff. And eventually, people wrote down their ideas. Socrates saw a danger in this. He was convinced that literacy would lead to stupidity. From the Phaedrus. Writing will introduce forgetfulness into the soul of those who learn it. They will not practice using their memory because they will put their trust in writing, which is dependent on others, instead of trying to remember things from the inside. When information is everywhere, we treat knowledge as irrelevant, or at least unnecessary. In my own experience, I've observed that when I'm presented with information I know I can look up later, I don't actually learn it. My childhood phone number was 772-5821. My parents' office, 529-5274. If I tried to call and it was busy, I had to call the second line, 529-8910. Diana has had a cell phone for years. And I call or text her at least every day. And if my life depended on it, I could not tell you her number. <laughs> now, I could call her at our first apartment, 526-7519, but we haven't lived there for 17 years. It's ridiculous. But the reality is, I don't need to know her number. If I'm filling out an emergency contact form, I can look it up if and when I need it. And I fear that I take the same approach to the Bible. I know all the information is there, and I can look it up if and when I need it. Do you hear the arrogance in that attitude? If and when I need the Bible. And the arrogance doesn't stop there, because somehow the less I read it, the more sure I am about what it says. 
I'll say that again. The less I read the Bible, the more sure I am about what it says. Socrates predicted this too. Writing will enable them to hear many things without being properly taught, and they will imagine they have come to know much, while for the most part, they will know nothing. Hear many things without being properly taught. I have a video clip that demonstrates what Socrates was talking about. You co-sponsored a bill requiring the display of the Ten Commandments in the House of Representatives and the Senate. Mm -hmm. Why was that important to you? Well, the Ten Commandments is, is not a bad thing mm -hmm. uh, for people to understand and to respect. I'm with you. Where better place could you have something like that than in a judicial building mm -hmm. or in a courthouse? That is a good question. Can you think of any better building to put the Ten Commandments in than in a public building? No. What are the Ten Commandments? What are all of them? You want me to name them yeah, all? Yeah, please. Mm. Uh, don't murder. Don't lie. Mm -hmm. Don't steal. Um. I can't name them all. If Mr. Westmoreland was in my class at school and I had to evaluate him, I would get to use my favorite report card comment. Lynn is familiar with everything we have learned this year but hasn't mastered any of it yet. <laughs> There's a difference between being able to access information and having understanding. And Proverbs makes it clear that understanding and wisdom come from internalizing the words of God so that they become familiar. If you will receive my words and hide my commandments in you, then you will understand. For the Lord gives wisdom. Out of his mouth come knowledge and understanding. So. Those are the reasons I don't read as much as I think I should. But I know I'm not alone. Because in 2014, the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada published a study on the Bible reading habits of Canadians. And I'm excited that this study exists, because usually, as Canadians, we need to deal with 15-year-old numbers from the United States. And the entire thing is worth a read, but here are some of the key takeaways which I have carefully selected to support everything I've said so far. First, do you want to guess what percentage of Canadians read the Bible? Sorry, not Canadians, Canadian Christians read the Bible at least once a month. So if you were to add up those who read it daily, a few times a week, once a week, or once or twice a month, what percentage of us do you think do that? It's 19. 75% of us read it seldom or never. Other key observations. The Bible engagement of self-identified Christians is no different 
from the Bible engagement of Canadians generally. It works out to a rounding error. And finally, the good news. Those who have conversations about the Bible at least once a week have a more robust biblical engagement and religious commitment than any other factor we've looked at. Getting, to other getting together with other people and talking about it matters. Of those people who do that, 63% attend services weekly, 57% read the Bible a few times a week, and 81% reflect on the meaning of the Bible a few times a week. So in my own experience, I've recognized that I'm not going to read my Bible unless I commit to doing it with a group of others. And there is research to support my experience. But so what? Like, do I really need to read it monthly? Like, why should I read it more than I am now? Can't I just look up the answers when I need them? No. First, the point of Surprise the World was to live questionable lives so that our peers and colleagues might ask us why we live the way we do, ask us how we manage to deal with suffering, or why we spend our vacations volunteering. And First Peter expects that we will always be ready to give an answer for the hope that we have. So the middle of a conversation is not the time to Google, what does the Bible say about hope? And the second reason we can't just look up the answers. Often, looking for answers in the Bible and just doing what it says doesn't work. I've been thinking about the story of the Good Samaritan since Craig spoke about it a few months ago. And I've known the story since Sunday school, and the more I think about it, the more sympathy I have for the priest and the Levite who passed the man on the road. Because I think they were just honest guys trying to follow the law. And yes, Leviticus 19 says, love your neighbor. But Leviticus 15 says, when a fluid comes from a person's body, the fluid is unclean. And Leviticus 19 says, whoever touches a dead body will be unclean for seven days. So what do you do? Do you obey Leviticus 19 or Numbers 19? I mean, the answer is Leviticus 19, right? Love your neighbor. Obviously, is it really that big a deal to be unclean? Well, remember, the first guy who passed by was a priest on his way to Jerusalem, on his way to work in Jerusalem. So what happens if a priest shows up to work unclean? If any one of your descendants is unclean and comes near the offerings the Israelites made holy for me, that person must be cut off from appearing before me. If the guy stops, he can't do his job. His job is to serve God. It's kind of an important job. I understand why he feels compelled to keep going. So Jesus is posing an ethical dilemma. Simply looking up the answer is impossible. A modern example. I'm hearing a lot about immigration from the media south of the border. Like, what is a Christian supposed to think? A year ago, then-Attorney General Jeff Sessions used Romans 13 to justify the new government policy of separating parents and children along the Mexican border. Specifically, when warning refugees not to cross, he said, 
I would cite to you the Apostle Paul and his clear and wise command in Romans 13 to obey the laws of the government because God has ordained them for the purpose of order. Now, to be fair, if you or I or Jeff Googled, what does the Bible say about obeying the law? It's unanimous. Romans 13. But if you actually click on Romans 13, you see that Romans 13 says much more than that. Verse 10 on the screen finishes, love never hurts a neighbor. So loving is obeying the law? So Jesus asked the teacher of the law, do you obey Leviticus 19 or Numbers 19? But the question for our, science, to our time seems to be, do you obey Romans 13 or Romans 13? Earlier I said, the less I read the Bible, the more sure I am about what it says. The opposite is also true. The more I read it, the more thinking I'm required to do. And that is why trying to look up a simple answer will never work. Because usually, we are looking for simple answers to prove ourselves right. But there are no simple answers because ours is not a simple faith. And the Bible doesn't tell us what to do in every situation per se. I mean, the law of the Old Testament told the people of Israel what to do, but that didn't work. As a result, we see Pharisees who weigh out dill but don't take care of their parents, or who are willing to stone a woman because she's caught in sin while their own sin remains hidden. Christianity is not a list of rules. And if we treat it that way, we will find ourselves like the rich young ruler of Mark 10 who followed all the commandments since his youth, but was still no closer to the kingdom of God. We shouldn't make the same mistake. As Elizabeth noted when speaking on Psalm 23 about metaphor, poetry, and creation, we need to stop reading the Bible to learn how and start reading the Bible to discover who. Because the scriptures are not a static reference document. They are alive, they are active, and they are eternal. Okay, that last bit wasn't me. I'm quoting the What We Believe section of the Forest View website. And because scripture is alive and active, Jesus expects his followers to use our minds. He says as much when he has asked the greatest commandment, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And if you read the footnotes, you'll see that he's actually quoting from Deuteronomy 6. But if you look up Deuteronomy 6, you'll discover that he is doing far more than that. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. I'll put them both on the screen at the same time for you can, so you can see it for yourself, because as we know, truth discovered is more enduring than truth explained. This all your mind business, that's new. And I don't think the world expects Christians to be a bunch of deep thinkers. But Jesus does. 
Every time he was pressed for an answer, he flipped the question to make his followers think. But thinking requires effort. When she spoke on Psalm 51 this summer, Lois admitted to being a recovering legalist who had a tendency to prioritize rules over people. I get it. Legalism is attractive because following rules doesn't require any critical thinking on my part. And it's a habit that I get in myself. I tem my temptation is to read Romans 3, that no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law, and then celebrate by treating the New Testament like a new Leviticus, a new law, rather than a case study for how to live by faith. It's way easier to condemn someone else for being wrong than to choose to believe the best in each other. Derek Webb has a song that talks about the temptation of finding a new law. He sings, don't teach me about politics and government, just tell me who to vote for. Don't teach me about moderation and liberty. Don't teach me how to live like a free man. I don't want to know if the answers aren't easy. Just give me a new law. Jesus in the Gospels and the rest of the New Testament afterwards doesn't give us a new law. Jesus doesn't tell us what to do. Instead, he tells us who to be and expects us to go through the work of figuring that out. But to figure out who to be, we need to reflect on the scriptures together. But to reflect, I need to read them first. But I'm only going to read them if I commit to doing it with a group of you. All right, to summarize, I'm convinced I need to join a covenant community this year. And if you saw my name, Skinner's, like on the list of available covenant communities, that's Diana. She's leading it. I still haven't signed up. <laughs> but covenant communities are that important. Jesus came that we may have life, and I recognize if I'm going to have it to the fullest, as he intended, I need others. And I've been talking about myself all morning, but I suspect some of you are a lot like me because I saw a lot of knowing glances in the last half hour, which means some of you are convinced too. And that is a problem. Because if you are like me, recognizing the importance of something doesn't translate into action. In all likelihood, the odds of you joining are the same as they were an hour ago. And I've been talking about covcoms, but if Doug had started the Sermon on the Mount this week, I suspect the same number of people would take the initiative to register at the back on their way home. And I probably wouldn't be one of them. But that shouldn't be surprising. Expecting those of us who aren't in a covcom to take the initiative is a bit backwards, isn't it? So as a church, if this is actually important to us, like, what are we going to do? Two years ago, before the first Muskrat Dam chili fundraiser, I remember hearing about it for four weeks, 
thinking it was very important, praying Andy and the team would raise the money they needed, and hoping the band member flying down to speak would be well-received. I did not actually make plans to attend. And that changed because of Andy. Now, I had never spoken to Andy before, but while I was standing at the coffee cart, he walked up to me with a clipboard in hand and said, I need your help. Can you make a pot of chili and bring it on Sunday at 6 o'clock? And instinctually, I said, yes. None of the announcements had motivated me to take the initiative, but they had conditioned the soil of my heart so that I was ready to respond when someone else planted the seed. Our vision is to become more like Jesus. If Jesus were to invite people into a Covcom, I don't think he would send out an email broadcast announcing that he was available on Wednesdays and encouraging us to click a link to the registration site. So if you're already in a Covcom, listen closely. If you have experienced the benefits of life together, if you have discovered the truth of what I've been explaining, find someone like me, make eye contact, and extend a personal invitation. My hope is that something we heard or experienced through the 100 days of prayer, through the visioning process, or even this morning, will have prepared us to say yes. Let's pray. Dear Lord, in a society that idolizes individualism, it is hard to break through. Help us. Amen.